Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Bonnie Ford has the heart of a poet and the courage of an explorer. She's never been afraid to dig into the gray area of sports. I first learned that about her many years ago when her byline was Bonnie D. Simone. And it's still true. She's fearless, willing to take on the toughest subjects and able to tell that story as well as anyone. Bonnie, welcome to Pressbox Access. I'm so happy that you've joined us. I am thrilled, Todd. It's great to hear your voice. Yeah, it's been a while, right? It's been a while. You know, it's it's quite an honor. I had to say right off the top, you're half of a dynamic duo in one household. <laughs> Married to the great Bob Ford, the uh, former Philadelphia Inquirer writer for more than 30 years. What a power duo. Bonnie and Bob, it's fantastic to have you. <laughs> oh, thanks, Todd. We have worked across the hallway from each other for a lot of years, and uh, somehow the marriage has lasted. <laughs> and in all seriousness, it what we do is so weird, as you know, that it's it's actually been awesome to have a partner who is in the business, doesn't do exactly the same thing as I do, but completely understands what it's like. Uh, we did cover some big events together, and um, <laughs> I, I, I just can't say enough, like how supportive he's, he's been and, and he, everything that I've been able to do in the last 10, 15 years is definitely he's been a part of. Yeah. Well, you know, Bob, I'm hoping to have him on the show at some point. Just going to tell him now he's going to have to wait for Bonnie first and, you know, and, and tell him that I do accept payola. It doesn't have to be currency. It can be beer. But at some point, we'll catch up with Bob. But today, Bonnie, it's all about you, and rightfully so. You know, I've admired your writing and your investigative reporting for ESPN for many, many years. Uh, you, you left ESPN in December of 2020 after uh, 15 years, I believe. Before that, the Chicago Tribune, the Plain Dealer in Cleveland. Um, you know, I always respected the fact that you had the courage to take on tough subjects. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different sports writers. There's beat reporters, there's columnists, there's people who do takeouts. What kind of led you down the path of your own career of, of digging into subjects like doping and mental health, complicated social, cultural, and financial issues? What was that, what was that path all about? Sheer madness, maybe? <laughs> I mean, we all come into this because we love sports. But I always have seen sports as just another prism to view humans through. And I spent a good part of my career not being a sports writer, covering politics and education and criminal justice and general assignment, you name it. And I, but my heart was always in sport. And so when I went back to sports writing in my 30s, 
I really wanted to use the skills and the knowledge and, and the sort of worldview I had in sports. Now, that sounds really lofty. I also loved having a ringside seat right, to some right. big events and doing daily stuff. Um, but the older and more experienced I got, the more I felt an obligation to take on complicated things. And I'm just a restless person by nature. Mm -hmm. And I thrived on a variety of assignments and doing beat coverage and event coverage and sidebars features and investigative, sometimes all at the same time in a given year. Right. That suited me for whatever reason. Well, I think it takes an empathetic mind, a worldview. And I mean, let's face it, like, I think I want to ask you about this. Like when you were back in college at Oberlin in the late 70s, you, you wanted to be a poet at one time? That is true. That is true. I had the luxury of arriving at a small liberal arts school in Ohio with absolutely no life plan. And <laughs> had... Well, I'm still looking for one. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, by the way, Oberlin was a fantastic place for me. No regrets whatsoever. But yeah, I, I knew I wanted to write. That's all I knew. Mm -hmm. And um, there was no journalism department at Oberlin. And so I chose a major that I was interested in, which was political science, and just kind of floated along until the summer between my sophomore and junior year. We weren't that far away from Watergate. And I was sort of taking stock of where am I? What am I doing? Where am I headed? My friends, a lot of my friends were applying to law school. I knew I didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, okay, I write fast. I, I was famed for my ability to, you know, churn out term papers quickly. And I'm really interested in current events and it's it, journalism at that point in time was uh, really we were all, I think, in awe of what The Washington Post, Woodward and Bernstein had done. And it felt like a calling, you know, mm -hmm. it felt like a way right. to be involved. And so I arrived back at Oberlin with this fresh aspiration and promptly was asked to work at the 10 watt campus radio station. <laughs> we don't even have stations that small anymore, I don't think. It just extended to the campus limits. And um, you, that, could only, that, you could only get it on Tuesday nights if it wasn't raining. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, seriously, it was a great place to start because you could make mistakes and there weren't that right. many people who were going to hear you. And I, I did everything. I DJed. I was a sound engineer for a radio theater. Uh, and I did some public affairs stuff, and I also did sports. Out of college, you, you were started in radio in Ann Arbor too, right? I mean, you started out, well, first of all, you were working at a pizza, pizza joint. <laughs> Boy, you did do your homework. <laughs> and then you ended up in a radio station in Ann Arbor. Um, and then that led to, you know, covering news in Ann Arbor and then on to the Detroit news. And you, like you mentioned, you did... Courts, cops, politics, you did all kinds of news stuff for 13 years. So I think that what was really appealing to me was, number one, just the interviewing and, and learning how to interview people at, in all walks of life, in all situations. And number two, trying to make topics that weren't necessarily very sexy or interesting, but did affect people's lives. Mm -hmm. How do you make those come alive. And 
Todd, I am one of the very few sports writers. I don't want to pat myself on the back or toot my horn, but... Go ahead. That's all right. You can. (laughs) actually covered the sewer board, okay? I covered an entity in Ypsilanti, Michigan, called the Ypsilanti Community Utilities Authority, uh, known as Yucca. And if you can cover a sewer board meeting and make it relevant in the paper the next day, you can do anything. Well, that's that's true. They don't have any quote sheets at the sewer board meeting, (laughs) right? (laughs) You know, but in all seriousness, when you think about it, covering courts, covering politics, all those years, and then in Detroit, too, um, it just gave you a different perspective, right? Because when you went back into sports full time as a sports feature writer in Cleveland at the Plain Dealer in 1994, you were bringing in a much different perspective than a typical person who came up and did nothing but sports, right? Well, there were two good things, Todd. One is that little did we know at the time, but being comfortable in a courthouse or city hall or any kind of documents research, uh, understanding a little bit about business, understanding a little bit about governance, all of those things would, were about to really come into play in sports mm-hmm. writing. Right. It, it wasn't just you know, the toy department anymore. We were expected to cover issues like stadium financing or, you know, a player or a front office person charged with a crime or any number of things where I suddenly found myself um, in demand um, for the skills that I had acquired without even really thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So um, I also was... I would say I was really comfortable in my own skin at that point. I had been in so many different situations with so many different uh, kinds of reporting challenges that walking into a locker room for the first time, while it wasn't particularly pleasant, um, I just, I I felt like I knew what I was doing. Whatever happened wasn't going to bother me. And so in that way, I think I had a leg up just sort of confidence-wise in, in not being intimidated by any kind of setting. Mm-hmm. You literally had a foundation. I mean, you had not only the skills, but the experiences that those skills then transferred well into situations that maybe were more unique to sports. How did it infuse your writing when you started writing sports features for The Plain Dealer and The Chicago Tribune? Well, I say that I was comfortable in my own skin and and had some confidence. I also was very, I was a little bit insecure about walking into communities like Cleveland and Chicago where you better know your stuff. Like the fans are so knowledgeable um, to some extent. Uh, I'll use the word skeptical of somebody who comes in from another market, another place and is writing about their sports, their teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that made me even more careful about my reporting and even more apt to sort of go out and do make those 15 extra phone calls to figure something out. And I got thrown really directly into the frying pan by Roy Hewitt, uh, the sports editor, late sports editor, who hired me in Cleveland. Um, his, the first thing he asked me to do was to report a long-form feature on the one-year anniversary of the boating accident where the two Indians pitchers were killed. Wow. And 
I had the shakes. I mean, I, I said to him, I, I don't think I'm up to this. I mean, this was such a huge thing for this city. And he said, that's exactly why I want you to do it. Go do it. Uh, he wanted fresh eyes. He wanted, you know, he, he just wanted a different, um, I guess, a different um, perspective, an outside perspective. So I flew all over the country um, went out to Oregon to interview Steve Olin's family and, and Florida to interview Tim Cruz's Cruise, family. Right. And one of the really most rewarding stories I've ever done, uh, because if there's one lesson I've learned through all the reporting that, um, that I've done, both on city side and in sports, it's that people want to talk about tough things. Yeah, right. They want to talk about what it's like to struggle, what it's like to lose a loved one. Um, we're not therapists, we're, we're journalists, but right. to, I think a lot of us, um, and I know I did when I was a younger reporter, you talk yourself out of these opportunities because, oh, they're not going to want to talk about that, or mm-hmm. uh, I'm not equipped to talk about this subject. If, if you arrive with curiosity, genuine curiosity and compassion, those two things will take you a really long way in, in a challenging interview. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, I was also asked by the same sports editor to do the exit piece, so to speak, on Art Modell, the former Browns owner. Boy, Roy was just giving you a bunch of easy ones, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> that was, uh, you know, um, because of, of you know where you're from and, and what you've done, the atmosphere in Cleveland and the attitude toward Art Modell after he decided to move the Browns to Baltimore was hostile in the extreme. And what, when Roy asked me to do this story, again, I said to him, this is two years later, like, I'm not the person to do this. I'm not from here. I don't know. And he's like, shut up, go do it. Mm. So I asked for a couple of weeks to read every single clip in the Plain Dealer Library, going back to the early 60s. I mean, You he, sound like me, Bonnie. <laughs> he went back a long way. Um, and then I made a legal pad list that had 75 names on it of people I wanted to call. Now, I'll have you guess, how many of them agreed to talk to me about Art Modell in late 1995? Over under? Out of 75, I would say a dozen. Four. Four, okay, yeah. I reached a lot of people, including Pete Rozelle, the former commissioner, who very politely declined. No one wanted to ta- touch this guy. And it was so, too hot. It was it was Chernobyl. I mean, it was, you, yeah, you needed a hazard suit to go in there, right? So I then learned quickly the art of writing a story when not only the main source won't talk to you, but nobody who ever knew him will talk to you. And so what do you what do you remember about that story? Uh, it was a you know, it was a writing job. It, it was like writing an obit for someone who was still alive hmm. at that point. And um, so I tried to be respectful and fair um, and include a lot of different viewpoints and and also write the crap out of it. And I hope I succeeded. Did Modell talk to you? No. Oh, no. He wasn't talking to anybody at that point. There were lawsuits and yeah. Did he ever talk to you later? No. What are your thoughts about Modell when you look back on it? that whole situation now years removed. Oh gosh. Um, he's a, a, an example of, of 
one of those old-fashioned sports owners who I think um, really had their ego and identity wrapped up uh, in the team almost to a fault. It was a very emotional thing with him. And when he didn't get what he wanted in, in terms of, you know, support, what he viewed as the proper financial support for the team and the stadium, um, and he saw, let's not forget, the Indians were getting all kinds of love, had just gotten a new stadium, et cetera, Yeah, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame had just come in. Yep, right. And he just uh, decided to leverage that and leave. And um, I think what surprised me the most when I went back and, and looked at all of those old moldering clips in the library was he was really a pillar of the community for a long time, very mm -hmm. involved in charitable stuff. And this was another reason he felt so maligned. Right. Um, when he didn't he felt, get what he wanted. Yeah, he felt wronged. And obviously the city felt wronged. And just a horrible, horrible moment. Not a moment, years. And it took a long time, you know, I think for the, the city to heal. Yeah, the emotions of that, um, there's something that really stick with you as a writer. And I think that's the type of moment that you experience through your career. Um, I think you, you you mentioned to me holy shit moments. Yes. <laughs> have you? Have, are there some holy shit moments that leap to mind when you take a take a look at all the years that you did these things? There are, and I actually divide them into several different categories. Oh, we got so, levels of holy shit. Yes. I love it. This is awesome. So there's the moments that you see in competition that are just crazy turnarounds miracles, shocking developments on the field of play. Then there are the holy shit moments on deadline, which yeah, I know you're yeah. familiar with. Yeah. Uh, some, sometimes those two things intersect. Oh, yes. Yep. And, and then there's the third kind of holy shit moment, which is someone, an athlete or a figure that you really know well, that you have a good relationship with or that you've simply written about a lot over the years does something spectacular. Um, and it, at least in my case, I then turn this fantastic blast of pressure on myself like, oh, my God, I have to do the best job in the world on this because I know this person's story better than anybody else. And that's mm -hmm. but I'll go back to the first because the, the absolute, you know, far and away winner of holy shit moments uh, for me was the Bartman game, the 2003 playoffs between the Cubs and Marlins um, and the game at Wrigley Field that I don't have to explain the circumstances, I don't think, to most of your listeners. But Steve Bartman, let's say the name. Steve Bartman, a fan who was sitting in uh, the left field corner, a, a reach for a foul ball became, uh, you know, a scene that will live in infamy. But the 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 actual holy shit moment for me was because that it unfolded over the course of an inning. Obviously, it wasn't just one moment. Oh yeah, there was some there was some cubness there, some <laughs> air, and some other things happened besides Bartman. I was sitting next to my then colleague Rick Morrissey um, in the auxiliary press box, which was outdoors, you know, tabletop seating, and and uh, in that inning, after you know various. Uh, things unraveled, what most people forget is that there were two outs in the inning and um, it looked like the Cubs might get out of this. And mm -hmm. the crowd was, you know, you could hear the, the, the sort of pleading nature of the crowd noise. 
Um, and you get very attuned to that as a sports writer too, like, cause often you're looking at your computer and, and you're listening to the crowd and you hear different sort of tones in, in the crowd that make you sit up. Yeah. The crowd can tell you if you have to delete a paragraph. <laughs> exactly. So earlier in the inning, when the Bartman actual sort of interaction took place, I heard the crowd noise get sort of more ominous and ugly. And then the inning progressed and, you know, Finally, we get to that two out point and the crowd is loud. And Rick and I in our computers have this, the running copy saying that the Cubs are going to the World Series for the first time since, you know, 1945. And Mike Mordecai hits a bases loaded double. And the crowd noise went from near deafening to silent so quickly that Rick and I, sitting in the upper deck, could hear what the Marlins were saying in the dugout. Wow. It was like a switch <laughs> was thrown. Wow. And we looked at each other, and Rick said to me, I guess we got to rewrite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, that's right, right? Define, delete, define, delete, define, delete. <laughs> so that was oh, a moment. And we also knew... At least I did, and I think most of my colleagues felt the same thing. You just knew they were going to lose the next game. You, you don't recover from something like that. Yeah, it was like the Red Sox after the uh, Mookie Wilson grounder to Buckner, and the next night you just knew it. So that, in, in terms of competitive moments, you know, and, and challenges on deadline, definitely takes the cake. I would say that um, in the other sort of more – positive direction. A couple of athletes who I've covered and, and knew very well um, doing something incredibly unexpected um, in the moment. Th those moments are really wonderful when, when you execute them. Um, well, give, it, give us one. Who was one of the athletes? <sighs> so, uh, well, I'll, I'll do, I'll cite two, if you don't mind. One is uh, there was a swimmer Olympic swimmer named Tyler Clary, who in the Michael Phelps, Ryan Lochte era, he was always the third guy. He was mm -hmm. constantly finishing second and third. And he was, you know, one of the best swimmers in the world. And no one had ever heard of him um, sort of figuratively because he happened to be in this era of these two dominant, very dominant uh, swimmers. Yeah, big shadow. Right. So he, um, I went and one of the sort of signature traits of my career is that I love going where everybody else isn't. And so I decided to go do a feature on Tyler Cleary and spend a few days with him, had a blast. He took me off-road trucking and uh, we went to a um, uh, Formula One race together because he's a big car guy and um, wrote this big feature he then, at the Olympic trials, gets sick and doesn't make the cut in his best event, which is the 400 IM, but he qualifies in two other events, including the 200 backstroke. And on the day in London, 2012, he wins the gold medal in the wow. 200 backstroke. And I just, I can't really explain what it was like to have, to, to watch that happen and, and then have that, again, turn that blast of pressure on myself, like, 
okay, you're, you went and did the story on this guy. Now it's your responsibility to, to put this in context and make everybody understand why this is so special. Right, I, right. I had an old friend, uh, Jack Brennan, a former sports writer and NPR guy in the NFL. Jack used to say when he was a sports writer, this would be a great job if you didn't have to write. <laughs> yeah, I hate writing. Absolutely hate it. But then uh, you, gotta, you have to write that story about him winning the gold medal and you know all this stuff. Right. How did you handle it as a writer? That one, I feel like uh, I had time um, I mean, the six hour time difference was also a gift and that I don't know that that's always been a gift for me because sometimes deadline just makes you churn yeah. it out and, and be done with it instead of agonizing over it, which is my tendency. <laughs> um, on I, I, the other athlete I was going to mention is Desiree Linden, who won the Boston Marathon three years ago in 2018, first woman, American woman to win it in 33 years in the worst weather conditions maybe in history um, with just sideways rain and gale force winds and 38 degrees at the start. And Desiree had always been, you know, in the mix and close and finished second one year. And to see her cross the finish line, someone I had, you know, covered and knew so well for 10 years, but it was 11 in the morning, <laughs> uh, 11 or 12 in the morning. And, and that was another problem. It's like, oh my God, I do, I, I, I have a lot of time and that's almost worse than being on deadline. But again, I think, you know, when I look back, um, and I, I know some of the guys you've talked to and, and women have said they never go back and reread their stories. I totally get that. I don't do it very often. Um, but I've looked back on, on some of those stories where I put that pressure on myself. And I feel like you, you might never be an A plus by your own standards, but you're usually an A minus or a B plus at least. Well, Bonnie, you mentioned the Boston Marathon, and I wanted to make sure to ask you about a holy shit moment, and that's the tragic day in 2013 when the bombs went off at the Boston Marathon. Where were you in the afternoon when that tragedy hit? I was in the press workroom, which uh, is always a ballroom at the Fairmont Copley Hotel. Mm -hmm. And as luck would have it, it was my very first Boston Marathon. Oh, wow. The Boston Marathon was always an event that I always had wanted to cover. I had covered endurance sports and major marathons and Olympic marathons for many years, but somehow just never made it to Boston. And it was on my bucket list. So I was, I was typing away. I was working on my analysis column, whatever, about um, Shalane Flanagan, who had been, was sort of the favorite daughter um, and the elites had finished, you know, hours before we had had the press conference and so on and so forth. And I had my Bose noise canceling headphones on listening mm -hmm. to um, interviews and typing. And I out of the corner of my eye, I saw a commotion in the press room, but I didn't think anything of it because there's often commotions in press rooms. And a couple minutes later, um, I just sort of sensed that something was off and I took my headphones off and I turned to the reporter next to me who uh, I still to this day don't understand why this person didn't tap me on the shoulder and tell me something was going on. And I said, what, what was something happening? And she said, yeah, we're locked down. There were two explosions on Boylston Street. 
So at that point, we were not allowed to leave the building. And so I had two reactions. One was abject horror because we were watching on the big screens that had previously been showing the race. We were seeing scenes of, you know, just absolute horrific scenes. And the second thing was, I, how can I do my job if I'm locked in yeah, this right. room? Yeah, right. How did you do your job? What'd you do? Well, first I tried to get out and they wouldn't let me out. And uh, there were a couple reporters and photographers who were savvy enough and knew the room well enough and, and who did get out. I'll never know how I would have reacted. You know, it's an open question. I know some of my friends and family were sort of glad that I didn't go out on the street and see anything. If, even if I could have gotten close to the scene, which is another question, they locked, you know, they shut it down pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But the Fairmont is the headquarters, the race headquarters. And so all of the elite athletes and their families and their coaches and were inside the building with us. And so I just went out and started interviewing people about their reactions. Uh, Shalane Flanagan, who I mentioned before, was incredibly gracious that day uh, and spoke to me. Meb Klefleski, who was, as luck would have it, going to win the following year, uh, spoke to me. Joan Benoit. You know, there were just a lot of people who were very thoughtful, again, in their shock and sorrow and, and spoke to me. And I decided that the best thing to do was simply to write a personal uh, essay about what it was like to be there, uh, be there, but not be there, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. And I, it led me down another reporting path later on, which, which really is meaningful to me. Uh, I was a bit consumed with the fact that I hadn't been able to get out on the street and report that day. Mm. And so that led me to want to do a story about some of the first responders, which led me to the athletic trainers who were on the finish line, which led me to really one of the most meaningful pieces I've ever written, which is about a young woman who helped save a life that day. Yeah, Devin Wang. It's an amazing story. And I don't mean that just to be because you're a guest, but it's an amazing story of long form journalism. Devin Wang, she was a student trainer, I think 20 years old. And she was pushing the wheelchair of the athlete whose legs were literally blown off at the knee. And, um, well, you tell us about it. Tell us about the story and what it means to you now, um, having written that story. Devin was a, a student at Boston University uh, studying to be an athletic trainer. And if you go back and watch the footage of, of that day, which unfortunately I had to do a lot to write the story, you see three reactions in the moment. You see people running away, you see people who are frozen, and you see people running toward it. And to this day, I will never, never be able to get my head around the courage of um, all of the people who ran toward danger. But in particular, these undergraduate students who were there you know, to, to spot dehydrated runners or tape an ankle or you know, give somebody a nausea pill and for them to run toward this war zone, uh, not really understanding what they were running toward, but knowing that they needed to run toward it. Incredible. And Devin, uh, as I came to find out, was an athlete. She was a a figure skater 
um, who competed in a discipline called synchronized skating. And I do think that her athletes' um, reflexes and, and mindset uh, helped her in that moment, but obviously it was also very traumatizing. And there's a very famous picture uh, photograph um, taken by Charlie Krupa of the Associated Press that shows um, the athlete, um, the double amputee with Devin and an EMT and um, a gentleman named Carlos Arredondo who helped in that moment. And the picture went worldwide instantly. Mm-hmm. Right. Devin was re-traumatized by the picture um, and t- it took her a long time to sort of come to grips with what she had experienced. And um, the process of building trust with her, understanding that this was going to, you know, she was going to identify herself for the first time in, in my story, was um, that, that was very rewarding. And almost 10 years later now, I'm, I'm happy to report that we're still in touch. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Do you stay in touch with someone like that? There's yeah. people that, and uh, Todd, I know that you would think of a few off the top of your head. There's people that you don't leave behind when you finish a story. Oh and yeah. I call them like little birds. They're always kind of in the nest around you. Yeah. And, and you, there's no way that and there's been a lot of discussion of journalistic objectivity in recent years, but when you uh, participate in that kind of an intimate exchange with someone, at least for me, um, they're always going to be on my mind. And in some cases I'm going to maintain a relationship. Some people don't want that. You know, some people, right. Right. You, you, that that's the end of it. Yeah, um, you respect whatever's best for that person. Right. Right. Yeah. But, uh, Devin is different and she, um, is now, uh, graduated from a physician's assistant program. You know, it turns out that her experience really convinced her that she wanted to be in the healthcare profession, mm-hmm. and she'll be awesome at it. Yeah. So I'm I'm really proud to know her. Well, that's great to hear. You know, the the Boston Marathon, obviously, that story became a world story, and even in normal years, the marathon is an international event. Uh, people from all over the world come to participate. And international sports has been such a part of your career, Bonnie. I mean, you've always kind of gravitated towards that. Um, I think you spent like your high school years living in Paris, France, right? Your family was in France. Is is there something about the international sport that has just always drawn you? I did spend my high school years in France. And so I became acquainted with that thing we call soccer. Oh, yeah. That football. <laughs> <laughs> and that thing that we call uh, cycling, the Tour de France, when oh, yeah. I was a Biking. kid, backpacking. Um, I remember going with my friends who were very excited that we were going to go see a, see a stage of the Tour de France. See in air quotes, I say, because we hiked up to the top of this mountain and spent the night and got up the next morning and I really didn't know what I was about to see. Well, what I was about to see was a bunch of guys going by really fast. <laughs> and, and then I turned to my friends and said, that's it. That's, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. That's why we hiked up this mountain. Um, but in truth, I was pretty enchanted by the whole thing and sort of following this narrative that unfolds over three weeks. And but the main thing that living over there gave me as as a very impressionable teenager was 
seeing the passion that people had for those sports, which was similar to but different than you know, our passion in the United States for professional sports. I had the travel bug from a really young age and, mm -hmm. and I wanted that. I wanted to go uh, cover sports in, in other places and see what that was like and grew up as an Olympics fan and wanted to cover the Olympics. So I got to do eight of them. I got to do, you know, a number of men's and women's world cups and the tour de France and, Let me ask you about the Tour de France. All right, so you see that as a teenager. How many did you cover? Like 14, I believe? 14. 14. Not, most of them start to finish, some of them partial. Now, this sounds like a very basic question, but it's asked as a reporter. How do you cover the Tour de France? <laughs> If somebody said to me, go cover the Tour de France, I wouldn't even know where to start. I mean, three weeks across country. What kind of logistical nightmare was that to cover? How did you do it? It's... Uh, let's call it a logistical challenge. It's it's. See, you go to challenge. I go to nightmare. It's a nightmare some days, but not always. It's <laughs> you do your work at the start and the finish, and you, you go to the start. You do interviews. You get in your car. You drive. You can, if you have um, authorization, you can drive ahead of the race. Some very few cars are allowed in race. Um, and then, uh, or you can go around to the finish, which most of us did because it's fun to drive the course. And it's fun to see the fans. It also, it's very stressful because mm -hmm. you're trying not to hit people and you're trying to get where you're going. And so a lot of times just for work's sake, you would want to get to the finish, start writing, and then the finish happens and you go out and do some more interviews and write your piece and then drive oftentimes quite a distance to where you were staying because sometimes you'd stay in the next start town. Mm -hmm. So I had the advantage of speaking the language. Um, a lot of those tours I chose to do by myself because it's so stressful, the driving and everything, that even though it's hard to do by yourself, you can often end up wanting to murder anyone who's in the car with you. So <laughs> I just often found it. Especially certain people come to mind. I won't name names, I'm just saying. <laughs> And I'm sure there's some people who want to murder me if I was in the car with them, but I get you. <laughs> so there are days, every single reporter I know who's covered the Tour de France has at least one day per tour where they say, I'm never doing this again. This is, uh, this is way too, too much. Um, but there's, it gets in your, in your system. And, mm -hmm. um, I, I really feel privileged to have done it as much as I did. And I, I miss my pals from that press corps because we are bonded. Oh, I, I bet, you know, all those years, three weeks for an event, all these years, 14 of them covering them, you do form a bond with a group of people who are dealing with the same challenges. Now you mentioned this, seeing it as a, teenager. And it's one thing to see the tour on television, like I have, or many of us have, but to see it in person, to see that mountain that those guys are going up or down, can you give some perspective of what it's like, the, the challenge that those guys have on the bike going up and down those, especially the mountains? I think for that race and, and the other two grand tours, so-called the, the Giro d'Italia and the Vuelta a España, It's all about recovery. You know, in the moment, the effort 
is what you're trained to do. And then how do you come back the next day and either climb another mountain or even if it's a different kind of stage, a flat stage or just a stage where you want to maintain. Mm-hmm. That's the tough part because even though the athletes are better taken care of than us journalists, I mean, they have staff there to, to take care of them and drive them places and give them massages and all of that. Um, it's still difficult both physically and mentally to recover. Mm-hmm. So um, we've seen uh, there's been a lot more specialization in cycling in recent years. It used to be that you had to be good at everything. You had to be good at climbing and time trials and uh, sprinting. And now you see much more bifurcation of that. Um, so on a given day, you're only riding 100 miles at, you know, trying to maintain your position as opposed to expending a ton of effort as a team leader. Right. But I just see that that thin little bike, those thin tires, sometimes it's raining. They're going down a freaking mountain. And I say to myself, <laughs> that, that looks absolutely insane. <laughs> it is insane. And and I found that out early on in, in my cycling coverage. I got into a team car uh, not during the tour, uh, but during a lead-up race in the Alps. And that's when I started to understand that descending, going down, um, calls for, you know, I don't want to rank these things, but it is certainly the most risky part of, of what they do, other than being in the middle of a bunch sprint. And the speed, you cannot comprehend it on television. You You just can't. The body control, the nerve, the eye that it takes. There's some fantastic athletes in, in, in the Peloton who are not great descenders because it takes a, a kind of an extra toolkit that not everybody has. And um, the risk, and I mean, you know, there have been deaths in, in high-speed mm-hmm. descents um, for that reason. And they're, again, the tires are skinny and they're not wearing... You know, thankfully now there is a helmet requirement, but that wasn't even always true. So it is, it's a very high risk occupation. And it's also true that once, um, once an athlete loses confidence because of a major crash or a terrible injury that takes a long time to come back from, uh, that can affect the rest of their career, understandably. Oh, yeah. I mean, how could it not? When you think about it, well, you can't mention the tour obviously without mentioning Lance Armstrong, and you have done so much in your career that I didn't want to just focus on Lance with you, but I'd be remiss not to ask you about him. You know, he he won seven straight Tour de France's races, and then you know became this icon, this thing, and then everything changed. Do you get triggered when I mention Lance Armstrong? <laughs> No, I don't. Um, I, I'm actually, with a few years of perspective, I'm grateful that I had such a compelling figure um, for so much of my career to cover. It taught me more, he taught me more probably than any other single person I've ever covered. What do you, what do you teach you? You have to put him up in the the top rank of most competitive athletes ever in any sport. Um, The drive that that guy had 
you know, yes, it was illegally enhanced, but you have to start with a pretty high level base um, of athleticism. Um, mm-hmm. It's so complicated. Um, it, it taught me, it humbled me, I guess is the best word I can use because hmm. I, I really threw myself into cycling coverage and I had thrown myself into trying to understand doping uh, and all those related issues. And this, um, this deception that was practiced was going on right under my nose. I mean, sometimes down the hall in the same hotel mm-hmm. and I didn't have it. And, and I couldn't, you know, many reporters tried to get at the story for years, um, but because of his power and influence in, in the sport, in the industry, there just wasn't anyone willing to talk about it for a long time. And of course, many of them would have implicated themselves, which is what ended up happening. Right. So it, it, it taught me never to be too cocky about what I know and what I don't know in Hmm. any given field and not to make assumptions. You know, I think there was an assumption made by not only us journalists, but a lot of the public that, wait, this guy, you know, survived this horrible cancer. There's no way in the world that he would put bad drugs into his body or there's no way in the world that he would risk his reputation to do this. Well, when you make that assumption as a journalist, then you are cutting off that part of your curiosity that you need to use. Um, right. And it, it was very hard for people to hold that tension in, in their heads that this guy could have, you know, accomplished some good and given people hope and so on and so on, but that he could also be a deceptive person who bullied people and, um, yeah, bullied you, know. you. I mean, you were at the receiving end of some of those. I well, mean, uh, I can't, I mean, being bullied as a journalist is an occupational hazard. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it. in a way, again, I'm almost glad that happened too because it, it made me understand a little bit of how others who were far more the target of his wrath mm-hmm. must have felt. You know, it's interesting. I never really covered cycling, so I never had to really write about Lance other than occasionally from very afar, which – you know, how much authority did I have in those situations? So in some ways I was removed from it journalistically, but personally, he pissed me off. My mother died of cancer at age 56, right around that time. And I used to wear that bracelet because I allowed myself to fall into that storyline because I wasn't writing about it as a journalist. I was thinking of it in terms of a personal story, right? And so when it all came down, man, it just kind of made me angry. You know, I was probably angry about a lot of things that happened with my mother's situation. And Lance became a target of that from afar for myself. And I think I went back and I read a reread a column of yours recently, you know, at the height of all that. And there was a line in there. There's a column about Lance. I think it was right after he was on the Oprah show. And the line that you wrote was, beware of myth making. And I think that's so true, you know. I think that's so true. When you look at it as sports writers, as journalists, you know, sometimes you have to just stop yourself from creating the myth or perpetuating the myth or not questioning the myth. And that's a hard thing to do because that's not a popular thing. We all love the story, right? So even for a person like myself who doesn't have the personal experience of writing about Lance all those years like you did, 
it's still complicated even for me as a reader. I don't know how you have handled it so well over these years as a journalist. Well, myths are fun, you know, and myths are necessary. That we tell ourselves myths for a reason. And uh, again, I don't. The fact that there was this deception does not necessarily. Um, it doesn't necessarily obviate the fact that people got hope and inspiration. You know, those two things can coexist weirdly. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, people want sports to be simple. And we as writers, when we're sitting and watching a thrilling event, we don't want to be doubting, you know, every single person we see on the field of play for one reason or another. We want to enjoy the moment. And so when I I talk to journalism students, which I really enjoy doing, and thank goodness um, there's still a lot of really great, bright minds out there who are training to be journalists, I tell them, you just have to live with the tension, just as you do in every other uh, mm -hmm. field of, of play, whether it's politics or education or, you know, there's, there are no real white hats and black hats. And just live with the tension, understand that there's a possibility that you're not seeing the whole iceberg. And you can deal with that later Yeah. in a lot of respects. You don't, don't get paralyzed on deadline because you think you have to include every single nuance um, in a game story or, or even a, a feature or a column. It, it can unspool over a number of years. And of course, you try to get as close as you can to the truth at any given time, but you're not going to get it in every snapshot. Yeah. I think it, looking back, I think if I had to deal with it as a journalist, the whole Lance topic, I would have handled it much better. <laughs> because I would have handled it as a journalist right? And, and not as somebody trying to read something into hope and so forth. But like you said, it's complicated, but sports are life and life is complicated. You know, it's not black and white. There are shades of gray and you have always been willing to go into those shades of gray. And that's one thing I've always admired about your work, you know, in the last decade or so, you, you've really made a point of, of really writing about athletes' rights, safety, mental health, working conditions, strong women voices. Is there something about all those topics that just came together at, at a point in your career where that, again, that path led you to those type of gray areas and things that we don't necessarily think about when we're watching that game? This is going to sound a little self-centered, but I honestly, I just didn't want to be bored. I, I just didn't, I mean, it can get old. Um, doing anything for the amount of time that you and I have done it can get old. And I wanted to be challenged. I wanted to look at gray areas. I wanted to treat my story subjects in the way that I would want to be treated mm -hmm. and not have people make assumptions about me or caricature me. So That's interesting. That's interesting. And, yeah, and the more, yeah. you know, the more I, especially, um, and now it's just exploded, this sort of area of reporting on mental health, um, coaching abuse of all different kinds. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I could go back, I mean, I think of all the stories that I probably missed, you know, or the nuances that I didn't explore. Um, I, I, I really... I, this is a bit of a somber topic, but I think it's really important. We have lost some young people 
You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes literally we've lost them um, to mental health issues and or they've been, you know, impaired and impeded in their life path because we just assume they're athletes and they're strong and and Mm -hmm. they're going to get through these, you know, issues or, or and transitions and it's just not so. So I, I'd feel like we get so much pleasure out of them and communal, you know, joy and seeing accomplishments. And then we just sort of check out. And would we do that with our sons and daughters and, and other loved ones? No, you mm-hmm. know, and in a way, I, so I feel a little bit, not maternal, but just protective, I guess, uh, of, of these athletes I think, um, thank goodness that athletes of high profile like Simone Biles and Michael Phelps and others are openly talking about this. It's huge progress. I think about the great story you did about Allison Schmidt, you know, the swimmer, the Olympic swimmer, and a story that takes a long time to, to report and write and put together. And she decided to use her platform to discuss depression. You know, a lot of it tied to the suicide of her cousin, April, and and also the um, just the come down from being in an Olympic spotlight to not. That story meant a lot to me as a reader. What did it mean to you as a writer, the story of Allison Schmidt? Allison was ahead of her time, I'll tell you, because people, that was only five years ago, but people were still not talking about it with the transparency that they are now. And Allison, while she's a very kind of bubbly, outgoing, fun person, she wasn't the first person I would have thought of to lead a charge. Mm-hmm. But she just, you know, she was on a mission. And that was an example of when we're talking about long form versus beat coverage or daily coverage. I was assigned to cover the Pan Am Games in Toronto in 2015. And it's, you know, it's not the highest profile event in the world, but I'm like, uh, yeah, sure, I'll go and gather some stories and maybe I'll get some ideas. And Allison spoke on the pool deck about this after a race for like a minute. And I just, I felt goosebumps. I'm like, I, I got to talk to this woman some more. I didn't know her very well. I don't think any of us really knew her very well. She was always in Michael's shadow. And mm-hmm. even though she was a multiple Olympic medalist, And um, so it took a while. I mean, she was on board immediately. As soon as I told her what I wanted to do, um, she was on board with it. But I went about it very slowly because I understood there was a deep well there and I wasn't going to just go right to it. I I tried to, um, I interviewed a lot of people who were close to her. I tried to follow her in in some different environments, including speaking engagements and that sort of thing. And then finally, when I really felt grounded in her story and her cousin's story, which was so, you know, interwoven with hers, Mm -hmm. that's when we sat down and did an interview that I will never forget because I really didn't know what she was going to tell me. I mean, I knew in generalities, but I did not know how badly she had suffered until mm. she spoke to me. And I'm, I'm getting goosebumps now talking about it. So that's, that's what I remember, Todd. I, I don't, uh, yeah, big events and I've loved it. But when you build trust with someone to the point where they are willing to share that and willing to trust you with their story, that's 
what I, that's the one thing that I would pull out of my career and say, I'm, I'm just so proud and happy I was able to do that. I got more of a response to that story than almost any other story I've ever written. Well, you've done such a great job at it over the years. So many awesome long form stories, great investigations, great beat coverage moments in time, events. And I know you left ESPN um, on your own choosing in December, but I also know you're too talented and has too much of a curious mind to stop. So I'm sure at some point there'll be more storytelling in your future. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I look forward to reading more of the stories that you write, Bonnie. Uh, They're the kind that take the reader past what happened on the field or on the court and, um, and, and make it a communal experience that we can all relate to as humans, you know. So I was there on that mountain with you in France, even if I had never been there because of reading the type of stuff that you did. So, so I'm looking forward to more of it. I want more of this, Bonnie. Tell us more. Do some more stories for us when you're ready. <laughs> That's awesome of you to say, Todd. I, I feel a little bit like I've got one foot in the great resignation, as they're calling it now, um, taking a break. I mean, I feel so much for my colleagues who are still in the thick of it and trying to deal still with all these COVID restrictions. I mean, all this stuff we've been talking about, building relationships and trust and that it's really hard to do that on Zoom. Right. Um, And so I hope for everyone's sake, for, you know, the sake of global health, among other things, that, you know, we're able to sort of resume um, life as we knew it and that sports journalists are able to actually stand in front of the people that they're writing about, that would be great. Um, as for my own future, I, I don't know. It's I'm taking a break. Um, I have to tell you that I haven't felt any great urge to sit and type uh, recently, <laughs> but uh, I'm also going to give myself time to um, for that to change. Well, you deserve all the time you can get, and I hope you're enjoying it. And uh, I just want to thank you for taking the time to join us on Pressbox Access. It's been a real treasure to uh, to speak about the different moments of your career, and I and I know I enjoyed it, and hopefully the the listeners enjoyed it too. And you, Todd. Thanks. We are kind of not always great at telling our own stories as journalists, so I'm glad you're doing this. Thanks for listening to Pressbox Access. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. 
Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview. And Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts. Mm-hmm.